free from the burden of sin. Let's bow in the blood, bow in the blood. Would you worry about a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood. Oh, the light. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the land.
All right, we're going to continue to worship together. Um, again, as Liam said, glad we can be at church together today, and um, welcome to to the family of God in worship. So if you pull out the bulletin, let me highlight a couple things. First, I'll highlight something that's not actually in the bulletin, and that's we've been tracking with our friends and brothers and sisters that have been in Malawi, and so they're actually, I think, flying home like right now. So, so what's that, Gary? Five minutes away. Okay, so they're, they're, they're almost here. Yeah, five minutes from landing. So anyway, so that's a joy, and it's been really wonderful, as we've mentioned in past weeks, just seeing the things that have been happening. And so we'll hear a lot more from them upon their return and their re-entry. So uh, it'll be wonderful to, to uh, receive them as they come back, and uh, so we can... Continue to pray for them as they re-enter and uh, look forward to hearing more from them. Hold out, pull out the bulletin here, a couple things. This, uh, coming up on the 25th here this week, we have this uh, Summer Kids Club again. It's coming up again the 25th, 6 to 8, bring kids, and they can have time uh, here with some activities and um, different, as you can see here, games and food. So, and then that gives parents some free space to do things that are important to them. Um, you see a note here on the 31st, we're going to the family shelter again to serve meals, which we do on a monthly basis, and Patty's looking for two people that would be willing to come along to serve. The food's already provided for this time, just needs two folks to come and, and serve and join in on that, and that would be coming at 515 to the family shelter. So see Patty, if you're interested in coming and joining and being able to serve those that are there at the shelter. It's a privilege for us as a church to have the opportunity to, to join with other churches in the community to provide food for those that are at the shelter. So see Patty if you would like to come. She needs two people that would be willing to join in uh, on the 31st. want to say a few things about our missions conference coming up. That's a, a few weeks away. So We'll have a number of missionaries that are, be, that are members of mission from the church that will be coming from out of town to be here and to share what God's doing in the midst of their mission and their ministry. On the first night of the missions conference, on Friday night, we have a, uh, an experience that we're going to share together in. I, I said a few things about that a week ago. Anthony's going to say a few things more about it, too, just to help us get a vision for what that experience would be like for families, for kids and adults. All right, so I don't know if any of you have had a chance. Um, we, uh, we actually have a, a child in Ghana. His name is Joshua that Emily and I support and, and the girls. And uh, it's a really neat thing. It's through Compassion International. And I'm sure if you've been to Christian concerts, if you've been to, to various uh, different events, they, they'll uh, try to do a push to get, um, to get the kids out or to, to get you to support the, their kids and uh, what's been interesting is I went two years ago to um, a youth conference, down, or I guess it was in two, it was about four years ago, to a youth conference down in Santa Ana, and there are actually having the kids that have grown up through the program who are adults now uh, come and, and speak. It was really fun. There was a guy by the name of Jay that I was able to, uh, to we were playing football with out, um, we were getting ready to pass out the everything for the kids, and it was a chance to to really get to... Uh, to get to know them. Well, Compassion has advanced this now, and they're actually having full experiences that, um, that they provide to, to us as churches, but they also have a vehicle that will drive around 
We don't, we're not doing the vehicle, but we are having the information provided from them where we get to experience what the poverty looks like in, in the other cultures. So, so we're going to be here. It's going to be a great time for kids. So if you guys know, uh, have friends and family with little kids, uh, all the way up to adults, uh, come on out cause, and invite them out because uh, we're going to be doing different uh, games that they do in the Philippines and, and experiencing uh, different activities and different, just different things that they have that that they have to go through and what they're experiencing with the limited resources that they have. So we're going to take that and actually be able to uh, to kind of learn about those things and see that. And there's all there's some videos where we get to actually learn about some of the kids specifically. And it's just it'll be a really great time and fun time to come out. And so this is a kind of a new thing we're doing for the missions conference on Friday night. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm actually going to be leading it and walking everybody through. So it's going to be a lot of fun uh, going through, looking at the games, looking at the uh, the activities and and the different experiences and watching the videos with everyone to really see what. The, the experiences in poverty th- across the world. So, so I just encourage everyone to really uh, bring, bring friends, bring families to this. It'll be a great time to, to just have the, those experiences and how we can in, impact the world and, and help compassion even uh, through these experiences as well. Thanks, Anthony. I always um, appreciate opportunities to expand my worldview uh, as a Christian. And uh, sometimes I think as a, as a uh, middle-class Western Christian, uh, my world gets reduced to, uh, you know, AYSO soccer games and what I need to do at uh, Home Depot to fix up my house. Uh, and uh, that becomes kind of the context in which I live. And yet, uh, God's placed us in the world uh, as men and women and kids that are, we're Christians in the, in the context of a much larger world. And so when there's opportunities that come along, whether a speaker or an experience like we're going to have that uh, Anthony just described that expands our worldview and helps us understand what does it mean to actually be a Christian in the context of the globe. Um, it's always worthwhile to grab on to that kind of opportunity. So I, I look forward to us being a part of that. I encourage you to come on that Friday night. Um, there's some cards in the back for the members in mission in our church that are having uh, birthdays coming up or anniversaries, so I encourage you to sign the cards on the way out. It's just a one way for us to give encouragement uh, to those that we're with in mission and help them know that we're a small way of just saying we, we see you, we're thinking of you, and you're an extension of our church as we wrap our arms around the world and around our country and the places that they're in mission. So sign a note on those cards. Even if you don't know them, they'll, it's nice just to have a name and a uh, 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 have a comment about a birthday or an anniversary. I want to invite the worship team to come on up, and as I do that, let me just highlight in the chairs at the bottom in front of you a card. So if you have a prayer request, please put that on here. If you're a new person that's here today visiting, you want more information, you can record your presence that to you. And then there's envelopes that are here. Those are for members to be able to give tithes and offerings and gifts to support the work and mission of the church. So let's continue in worship uh, as the worship team leads us. Conversation and you discover, oh, wait a second, we share something. 
uh, you realize that you're both Christians. <coughs> and in some of those conversations, there's this delicate sort of feeling out stage where you realize, okay, we come from different traditions. We come from you know, different uh, backgrounds in, in, in various ways, but there's still a warming that the Holy Spirit, I think, stirs in us to say, yeah, you're in the same family. You know each other, but you have God in common. And I think that can happen in lines. <laughs> it can happen uh, in all sorts of places. When I was coming back from Catalina this week, uh, I was on the uh, Catalina Express heading from Avalon back to San Pedro, and I was sitting <coughs> next to a woman, and we were talking, and of course you're like, where are you coming <coughs> from, where are you going to? Turns out, I mean, she thinks that she had been at Campus by the Sea 30 years ago, <coughs> uh, which is where we were at for our camping, and had, had lots of special things, but somehow the conversation turned to the funeral of her mother, uh, whose ashes were scattered there in the channel uh, between Catalina Island and um, the mainland. And she was just trying to connect with me, talking about some of the spiritual experiences at Catalina, talked about how, well, when they scattered her mother's ashes, who really loved Catalina, uh, two flying fish leaped the boat. Uh, and she's like, oh, it was this experience that for her was, was important to share. And I think as we hear those kinds of uh, things that could look like a coincidence, but which affirm so much the human moment, we can recognize the hand of affirm that experience of the supernatural in someone else's life. Uh, we're on a, a plane ride together, uh, maybe a longer lasting one as a church body, uh, but God brings us into contact with others through, and through our sensitivity to his spirit stirring in us and our recognition of that spirit in others. Uh, we come, become aware of just how large our God is and what he's doing in us, alive <coughs> in others. And it becomes really a central part of who we are as we relate to other people with whom the only thing we really share is that life in us of God. Uh, so I invite you to, to stand now, uh, join us as we sing uh, about the way in which God is alive in us. Just be grateful and receive that life in us as we sing.
so much more than we're capable of alone. It's what you've promised. Your spirit working through your church. Lord, may we be your church as we seek to follow you into this world. Amen.
fight before us Your brightness You lead us through the storm Fight before us You're the brightest You lead us through the storm Fire, fire before us You're the brightest You lead us through the storm
servant changed. You know, and it gives him supernatural insight uh, and skill in teaching. And Lord, stir up your spirit in us that we would receive this life-giving word as equipping for the tasks you have given us in this world. In Christ's name. seat. Um, so I want to just highlight for us that, um, again, we have the opportunity today to have, uh, as Pastor Cliff is out of town and on the Malawi missions trip coming back today, we have the opportunity for uh, someone else to be speaking and bringing the word today. And today that's Chad Rickard. So Chad, as you know, uh, if you're a regular attender, Chad's our worship director. He's also, his day job is teaching high school English. And um, I'm grateful for Chad and that we get to hear him uh, bring a message that God's laid on his heart. I appreciate Chad for a number of reasons, a couple of the reasons that I am so glad that Chad's preaching today and what I appreciate about him in my life and in our life as a church. One is Chad's uh, intentionality. I think uh, Chad and Emily together, they, they live a life of intentionality as they seek God and as they seek to live a life of faithfulness, they're very intentional in what they, in the choices they make uh, with time and resources and their gifts and abilities. And I just, I respect that and I see that in their lives and that's a, a model for me and maybe for all of us about being intentional with our choices. Chad's a person of vision and one of the ways that that vision is expressed that I particularly appreciate is the vision that he has for people and particularly for students to see themselves uh, uh, he has a vision for them for more than they can see for themselves. Um, and that is a gift to have a teacher that's uh, involved in the lives of students, not just teaching an academic subject, but they see students for who they could become. And that's a, a beautiful thing. And Chad has vision that spills out into other ways, some of which I think we'll hear this morning. And then Chad's a person that's very earnest. So he's uh, not only a teacher, he's a coach, and there's an earnestness that he brings to his work into the way he lives, and I just am so grateful for that. So we're blessed to hear from him today. Uh, Liam's already prayed for him, so let's uh, welcome him and hear the word that he has for us. Thanks, Chad. Thank you, Tom. Uh, so the sermon today is about uh, listening to, to new voices, new voices to you. Um, and so it was interesting today um, that because I was preaching, I had to kind of give some... Uh, leadership to other people um, to do it. So it was interesting hearing my own sermon in my head as uh, Liam led us today, as Emily helped out today, as Gary even took some solos. So I, I just appreciate my team, um, and we will be doing this from now on. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be doing a lot more delegating. I, I loved hearing from different voices. Um, so some of you know that uh, my, my grandfather passed a couple of weeks ago. Um, he was a pastor for 50-plus years, and he, um, I, one of the things he, he always said was, if you ever get up to preach and you're not nervous, uh, there's a problem. Um, and so it's an interesting thing, planning a sermon, right? When, when you're planning a sermon, it's, it's just theology, it's just a speech, and then about 15 seconds before you start, you go, oh, shoot, uh, this, is, this is the Word of God we're talking about. Um, this is everything we believe that we're talking about. Uh, if you get up here and you lead people astray, there is <laughs> responsibility and consequences with that. 
And so I, I just uh, am blessed to be here and always humble, humble to, to be able to speak about the Christian life. As a leadership team, we are all constantly talking about vision, uh, and when we do so, we often uh, ask a simple question. The question is, who is Bridges? Um, so I wanted to begin our talk today with, with a, a question about Bridges, seeing if anyone is aware of this, um, to see if we even know of our identity markers at this church. Uh, does anyone know the name, the type of denomination that we are here at Bridges? So it's, it's an identity marker for us, right? So the question is, how big of an identity marker is it? So uh, the, the slide will help us out here. Reading, reading will help us. Your notes might give you a hint. Hints are, are fun things. Bridges is an interdenominational church. Uh, I had never heard that term before interviewing for this job almost seven years ago. And I've had to have it explained to me several times since then. Um, in the past year, we thoughtfully considered joining uh, the Southern Baptist denomination. Um, and as these conversations brewed amongst the leadership team, amongst core people, uh, even in a family forum, it became clear that there were voices in the church that felt being marked specifically by a single denomination uh, could cause us to lose some of our identity that we have here at Bridges. Identity that comes from being an interdenominational church. And so uh, we're going to explore a little bit just of, of what that could possibly look like to be an interdenominational church today. So I spent a lot of time analyzing uh, the beauty that could exist if we were to latch on to this concept and really make it an identity marker for us. I've been blessed to be in churches of specific denominations. Um, I grew up in a non-denominational church. Um, so this will not be a conversation that exists to hurt other churches and the identity that they've found that they need to align to uh, with God's vision for their work within the global body of Christ will simply just be kind of dreaming, dream, dreaming for the beauty that could exist in a church that truly desired to say, look, we believe that salvation is through Christ alone of utmost. It's of grace alone. It's of faith alone. It's of scripture alone. It's to God, the, God's glory alone. Um, but outside of that, Everything is up for healthy, purposeful debate. What would it look like if Bridges really attempted to embrace various perspectives that exist within multiple denominations within Christ-centered, Bible-following Christianity? So that's what I'd like us to explore today. Let's pray real quick before we get into it. God, you have given Bridges Church its specific history it's specific identity markers for a specific purpose. Within your will to redeem the global church, we pray that you will give us hearts that are willing and open to ask the questions, who is Bridges and who should we become in the next phase of our history? Amen. Uh, by the time I was in high school, I was at least in my own head uh, very wise uh, compared to my peers. My parents were youth leaders, so I had grown up around uh, people that were older than I was, and I felt uh, ahead of my years. Uh, I enjoyed being at the top of calculus class, and when I went to English class, I was giving what I thought were thoughtful, original insights. 
uh, into the novels we read in class. I was accustomed to, to, to giving uh, thoughtful answers in youth group settings. So I enjoyed believing that my perspective was the writerist of all perspectives. Uh, my senior year of high school, I came down here to live with my brother-in-law and my sister um, to start a band with them. Uh, and my uh, need for reassurance for elite correctness continued, but it didn't translate well to living with two firstborns uh, who were also confident in their opinions, right? So I remember sitting in the car one day uh, with my brother-in-law. Boy, if you're hearing this at some point, we can be honest with each other, right? He brought up something that I, I apparently couldn't let go, right? Um, and so, so I, I, just, I just kept on bringing this thing up, right? I don't even remember what the topic was about, um, I was pretty particular about insignificant details at that time, so it was probably something stupid about what were the most accurate chord progressions for a worship song that we were covering or something dumb like that. Uh, he finally had had it with my obsession for correctness. He goes, dang it, Chad, you're right, okay? You're right. Is that what you needed to hear? Does that make your life any better knowing that you were right about this one little thing? That argument was the beginning of my reflection on my need to be right. My need to be certain that I was most correct, that my strategies were most successful, that my logic was more sound than yours, that my ideas were more well thought out than yours. These beliefs about myself had validated my self-worth up until then. I needed to be right in order to feel secure in my identity. Um, you'll have some different things popping up on, on the PowerPoint. Uh, so uh, as Tom said, I'm, I'm a teacher. If I see people not writing, I'm like, I'm failing at my job. So um, just from time to time, just scribble some random letters down, just so I'm like, yes, I'm hitting on all points today. So I'm a little different with PowerPoint. My, my thought is give you some, some, some little blurbs that might stick with you. If they do, great. If they don't, skip on to the next one. So feel free to skip. Don't, don't feel like you have to write everything that's on there. If something speaks to you, write it down. So this centrality of being right for the sake of my identity is a characteristic that it's specific to me, right? And yet, to some degree, science tells us that exists in all of us. Uh, in psychology and cognitive development, this process... Uh, I'm seeing Jane McGuire over here. I want to have her talk a little bit when I'm, when I'm done. She'll be doing a Q&A after this. This process is called schema development. Uh, what is schema? So if we can get a little bit nerdy for a second. So uh, the, a, a brief explanation. It can be described as a mental structure of preconceived ideas, a framework representing some aspect of the world, or a system of organizing and perceiving new information. So schemata, just the, the plural of that term. Schemata influence attention and the absorption of new knowledge. This is key. People are more likely to notice things that fit into their schema while reinterpreting contradictions to their schema as exceptions, or here's what we do most likely, right? We distort those new things that contradict to fit in our own schema. Schemata have a tendency to remain unchanged. This is a little... Sad and embarrassing as I, as I say it. Schemata have a tendency to remain unchanged, even in the face 
of contradictory information. Real word, here's what we're saying. We have a human need to believe that we are correct even when we are faced with evidence that reveals holes in our perspective. So schema, essentially, it's, it's building blocks, right? It's building blocks that keep our cognitive world from crumbling. It's a safety mechanism. The mind wants to develop schema that is rigid because it creates a structure that reinforces our reality. So we as humans, we have to convince ourselves that we've always believed this way. It's always true what I've always believed. Otherwise, our whole world might crumble. This is the main application of one of my favorite movies of all time, The Matrix, uh, that, that presents this question, is it possible my entire reality is a lie? Um, it's a scary question, right? Uh, I think it's one of the scariest questions a person could ask oneself because it's completely possible. Right? This is something I, I talk with my students about all the time as we're exploring literature throughout uh, the ages. Um, even the Bible is full of individuals who buy into a culture and the culture's beliefs of their local community, and they suffer the consequences. Right? So when Abraham, he can't wrap his head around how God is going to fulfill the, the promise that he's going to father many nations, what does he do? He uses the strategy of the local community. He has intercourse with his servant. This strategy would have been common sense with his culture. And yet, we saw that it clearly damaged his family. It damages really the entire world. It brought bitterness uh, to his wife, Sarah. When King Saul acquiesced to David's intention to fight Goliath, what does he do? Well, it seems logical. David should wear the king's armor, right? As the armor dwarfs David and renders him immobile, we get to see kind of a, a funny picture, right, of what happens when people try to do God's work through their own strategies. There are hundreds of examples in, of entire people groups throughout history that have been duped into buying into a reality within their culture that seemed right to them because everyone around them agrees. But looking back on history, we can agree sometimes these things that seem logical to, to this people group prove to be false and have devastating consequences. Probably the most exaggerated example of this that we can think of within the 1930s and 40s, uh, if you were growing up as a German then you most likely would have received indoctrination in the school system you were growing up in. You would have received propaganda in the formative years of your life that would have led you to believe as a German that your entire economic and social system, um, all the issues, all the flaws in that system were the fault of the Jewish population. And after being brainwashed throughout schooling years, these young Germans went on to commit one of the most horrendous crimes in history in the attempted genocide of the Jewish people throughout the world. We could give countless examples of, of this kind of process through history. A common idea or value stirs in a people, right? And then a generation grows up that completely buys into that specific ideology. And in a context in which every single one around you believes this ideology is correct, people commit horrible and terrible atrocities. We saw this in the Civil War in Rwanda in the 1990s as the Hutus attempted to wipe out the Tutsis off the planet. Give me a second here. We 
We could go on with uh, countries around the world that have experienced uh, these types of atrocities in our own country uh, in the last few years. Racial hostility, prejudice, propaganda, right, has led uh, to just generations being in turmoil. Go around the world, Syria, Uganda, uh, the ever-persistent issues in Palestine, Georgia, Armenia, Bosnia. My own great-grandmother came to America from Yugoslavia, a country that doesn't even exist anymore because it's been torn apart by racial and religious hatred. In our own country, the last several years, again, we've seen racial prejudice. We've seen this discussions of bias, trying to redefine what is equality. Light will be shown on these harmful ideas, and this is the point I'm trying to make here. If we as a body were connected, it's the point that, the, that Tom was even talking about as we looked at an upcoming event of a missions conference, if we were more connected to more cultures around the globe who are Christians, we would see these things pop up. And yet we stay in our, our little specific AYSO culture. Things that are important to us in the moment are our Home Depot, Fix Your House Life, and we become ignorant of these issues around the world. Connection to the global church saves you from being brainwashed by your specific culture. That, that brainwashing could be as extreme as right, Nazi Germany. It could be as simple as obsession with uh, remodeling your home and going to soccer. Both are completely devastating if they lead you away from Christ. All of these atrocities share a common foundational issue uh, that really begins with a perversion of our brain's schema-building process. Um, it's, it's kind of a term that maybe some of you have heard. It's called ethnocentricity. The breakdown of the meaning of ethnocentricity, ethnocentricity is pretty straightforward. It means for your world to be centered around your ethnicity. <coughs> and to have some type of bias that reinforces the belief that your race is better than others. Now, hopefully in this room full of believers, saved by the grace of God, we wouldn't be characterized at least by surface-level ethnocentricity. Hopefully, we're able to see um, in all humans the same brokenness, the same sinfulness, the same need for Christ, and the same amazing new identity marker of Christ's glory in those who are believers regardless of their race. Amen? Amen? But I think behind ethnocentricity is a principle that is common to all humans as we attempt to develop schema that will make sense to us. Because what ethnocentricity really shows us is that we are under the impression that those who believe, think, look, and act like us are better than those who aren't like us. Because if I can convince myself that those who think like me are completely correct and those who think in a different way, who disagree with me, are completely wrong, then my schema development is safe. And I can go on with life believing my world is secure. The real reason we as humans will be racist, we will exhibit prejudice, we will only be Facebook friends with those who uh, agree with us about political ideology, the reason we hang out with people who look like us and act like us, 
is that we are desperately afraid our entire world could be a lie. As we move forward into looking at the uh, Scripture specifically for today, uh, keep in mind I wasn't asked to deliver an entire series on this, right? so I'm trying to cram an entire uh, probably month of stuff into 40-ish minutes. Um, so there will be some concepts that I'll have to skip. Uh, I would love to be able to look at what, what does conversation look like with non-Christians uh, and non-Christian uh, and Christian disagreement. Um, obviously, we're living in a time in which doctrines inside the Bible are completely contrasting uh, to those outside of the uh, Christian world. I wish we had time to discuss those things and uh, discuss how you can graciously engage those in love. Um, some of you know, again, I'm an English teacher, uh, so for the past 13 years, teaching people how to debate and love is something I've been working on professionally. Um, it's a very, very important thing for a Christian to be able to look at someone with a completely different ideology and do this thing. I think it's called listening. I think that's the word. Um, what a dumb word. Who would ever do that? Um, so we won't be able to get to conversations outside the church today, but I think some of the same principles apply. So today we'll be specifically focusing on how do we approach disagreement within the body of Christ. So I want to start with a passage in uh, Acts chapter 6. You can turn there real quick. So I think this passage will give us uh, kind of an example of two contrasting perspectives within the same local church body. And so as we're doing this, think of how we can apply this to our own disagreements that we see in churches. So the truth here to get from this, we gain a more holistic view of the will of God when we have multiple cultural perspectives representing the same church. Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So there are two different cultures represented in the text, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, two different cultures, two groups of people with different social identity markers, but of the same Christian faith. Amen? Yes, we're, we're getting that concept here. Different social identity markers, and yet bonded in Christ. Two different perspectives of how these two cultures interact, two different perspectives of what equality looks like, two different perspectives of who's being mistreated, and what priority must take that all-important top-shelf spot. It says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. There are two people groups, both Christians first and marked by culture second, and one group comes and says, there's a problem. You Hebrews are neglecting our Hellenist widows. We see that, that conflict coming up. It's an interesting scripture. I think it's an important word that God has given us. It's a beautiful picture of the issues that come about when we unite different people groups 
under one belief system, we may be knitted in Christ. But in no way does that mean we will have the same exact life experience or the same exact view of what's happening in a specific experience. The Hellenists felt wronged by the Hebrews. An interesting question to be raised here, and it's, this is just purely hypothetical. Um, I have no clue to the answer. Uh, I was just thinking through, would the Hellenists, would the widows naturally have gotten their needs met if a representative from their own didn't speak up? Would the Hebrews have ever noticed the issue? I mean, it wasn't the Hebrews' mother, the Hebrews' grandmother. Would they ever have seen the issue? Would America have made more moves toward racial equality if Reverend Martin Luther King didn't feel the weight of being a Christian pastor, but also of being the representative of his race that was being mistreated? If you ever listen to his sermons, uh, Martin Luther King's sermons, and I encourage you to do so, they're absolutely beautiful. You can feel the pain in his voice as he discusses the suffering of his own people. The Hellenists had a worthy perspective. James argues that true religion is marked by helping of the orphans and the widows. So they were right, and the Hebrews were wrong. Yeah? Well, wait a second. The Hebrews come back with their own perspective. It's not right. It's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Is that who we are now? We're waiters? Look, I understand you love your mom. I love your, you love your aunt. You love your grandmother. You, you sympathize for that hellness who had no children, and now she lost her husband, and now she has no one to take care of her. But you see, Jesus said, go and make disciples. We have to preach the Word. Feeding the hungry is important, but we are feeding souls. Okay? We have a, a righteous thing to do here. Oh, the Hebrews have a good point. Right? How, how do you disagree with that? So that's right, then it's the end of the debate, right? The Hellenists brought their claim, but the Hebrews brought their counterclaim. Eternal salvation over empty bellies. Boom. Debate one. Go home, Hellenists, right? Come back when you've got your rhetoric straight. Bring a better argument. Maybe we'll talk. Is that how, how church should work? Is it the best uh, most rhetoric-filled argument that wins. Is that how the body of Christ works? It shouldn't be. Whose perspective is correct, the Hellenists or the Hebrews? Whose value takes precedent, the Hellenists or the Hebrews? Hopefully we can see this is a trick question. Like most pro-con debates, like most winner-take-all scenarios, Republican or Democrat, my race or yours, Calvinist or Arminian, Jesus is fully God or Jesus is fully man. Should Christians be separated from the world or should they be hanging out with prostitutes and money-hungry cheaters of the system? Should Christians sell all their belongings and deprive themselves of the worldly pleasures or should they indulge themselves with the luxurious blessings of God's cre creation? These are trick questions because God is not so limited. God was not raised specifically uh, in Riverside in the 20th century, and so he does not solely agree with our perspective. He was not raised, God did not grow up in Europe, 
during the Reformation, so he does not completely and solely agree with Calvin. He did not grow up in first century Hellenism, nor is he stuck in the confines of the Mosaic Law. God has revealed himself in a myriad of ways throughout history, and he cannot be confined by the myopic perspective of one culture. So this passage does not end with, with one people group holding their head up high in pride while the other goes off and sulks because they lost. Okay? The loser of the argument doesn't go off and start their own church. You know what? We're just going to go ahead and start the Hellenist Widow Care Church. Okay? Right? Because you know, we, were, we were at this other one and, and it got neglected. So it will be the only thing that we address now. We'll never preach the gospel because we were hurt by the Hebrews when what? They were focused on preaching the gospel. So now we just feed Hellenist widows. That's what we do. That's what our church is dedicated to. This hitting home at all? Church history is full of religious sects splitting off from larger groups because someone had a valid complaint and it wasn't fully respected. So what they do? They went off and made it the main thing in their denomination. Yeah, we were part of this church, but they only focused on evangelism, and they neglected true discipleship. So we started our own church, where all we focus on is discipleship. Well, we were in this church that really cared about knowing the Bible, but they didn't ever reach the community, so we started a church where all we focus on is reaching the community. We went to this church and they were focused on political rights of Christians in America. We felt that was kind of strange. So now we go to this church that only focuses on social justice without worrying about all the Christian needs. We partner with any organization that's willing to help us out and taking on hunger in Haiti. Yeah, we were at this church where they built all those things in Haiti. But after being in Haiti for a year, no one had been baptized. So we were like... Now we go to church that only supports explicit evangelism overseas. We were a part of a church that focused on becoming more Christ-like. But then everybody got really judgy. Everyone was under church discipline. So now we go to church where people are just real and genuine. Yeah, but then after about five years of being at that church, we saw that people were claiming to be real and they were just being content and living in sin. So now we go to church where we keep journals of our sins to make sure we're being transformed and sinning less every day. This is how the pendulum of church swings. We see it's a a little bit comical. You won't listen to my perspective, so I'll create a new denomination that's only focused on my perspective. And just so we're clear, uh, are any of these single perspectives that I've just highlighted wrong. No. But each of them, if made the sole priority, is an incomplete picture of the work of the body of Christ on earth, which can be just as dangerous. In this passage in Acts 6, the answer is not to determine who's correct and who has to acknowledge that their perspective was inferior. The answer is to see that both perspectives are represented and given proper attention. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, 
whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. What a crazy concept, right? That, that you, you seem passionate about that need. And, and this, is, this is a crucial and here. I can see scriptural basis for fulfilling that need. We should do something about that. You have a conviction. So yes, let's, uh, let's see how we can go forward with your conviction. Notice though, and I think this is interesting. Um, I, I don't know that this should be the response for the church body always, uh, but the apostles' answer, answer here is worth pondering. We're going to appoint someone full of the Spirit and of wisdom to do this work, right? It's important, but it isn't our conviction, so we aren't going to be in charge of it. You have your conviction. We see its validity. We want it to be completed by those who would share in your conviction, but we have what? Our own conviction from Scripture, from the Spirit's leading, okay? We have to devote ourselves to that conviction. So there's you, there's us. We come together for worship. We come together as the body of Christ. And there are times when, when we need to embrace each other's convictions, right? And, and demonstrate our support by duplicating each other's efforts. But there are other times where we need to support various convictions by delegating. Right? Dan King uh, had a conviction. We needed better lights, right? Better lights for our stage. He came to me to double check that it was okay with the vision of the worship pastor. I was excited. I said, go for it. I said, please don't make me get up on a ladder because I'm afraid of heights. I'm a little baby. What we should do, we should appoint someone who can support your conviction with this skill set that I would only obtain through miraculous intervention, right? Who could we get? I don't know. Maybe a fireman, right? Don Lee's a real man. Let him get on that ladder. Okay? And so we have great lights. Not because of me. Not because I somehow gained a skill set. Not because I came over my, my fear of heights. But because we looked in the body and found somebody who already had the conviction and the skill set. So I'd like to take a moment, uh, just before we move on to the next section, just looking at your notes. Um, do you see parallels eh, from this passage in our own church body? Take about a minute and just go through some notes there. Think time. The think time is fun for teachers and students, but still awkward in church. Hopefully we can change that. Too many times in the body of Christ, someone comes to a church's leadership team with an idea. The idea seems biblical, but it doesn't quite line up with the church's leadership skill set, and so the idea is dropped. The conviction is stifled. If Bridges is going to embrace our identity as an interdenominational church, we should be marked by ministries and worship from multiple cultural and denominational perspectives. So please hear me. I'm begging you, right? If you speak a different language, 
come take part in the worship team. If you come from a denomination with a rich liturgy that I personally, personally neglect, come meet with me. Teach me how to incorporate it or work with me on how we can get you to lead those activities. I've expressed to the leadership team on multiple occasions that because we claim to be an interdenominational church, I believe we should have kind of a rotation throughout a month, throughout a quarter, whatever it looks like, a rotation of different traditions represented, different liturgies, different symbols represented in our service. I mean, how limited are we when the only person in charge of the worship songs is a young white male who grew up in a small town in Northern California with all white people in my town. I need help. I need help from people who have been around the globe, who have a different perspective. I need help from people who have studied church history, that's a hint, Liam, and church liturgy. Okay? 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Here's your conviction for today. What then, brothers, when you come together, who has a hymn? Each one. Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. The church was never meant to be a one-man show. The church was never meant to be a one-gift show. Pastor Cliff and I are pieces of the puzzle. Tom is a piece of the puzzle. But we can't be the whole picture. The three of us do not encompass the word interdenominational. Emily Hall has been such a blessing because she's not me. Her taste in music is not mine. I appreciate it. It's absolutely beautiful, amen? But it's not the style that I would naturally play. And that's why it's absolutely necessary. Liam Corley, a hero of mine, uh, because his perspective of the Bible is so rich, so deep, and often quite different from mine. When we first started at Bridges, he led a small group that we participated in. I'm just blown away by his knowledge, as we usually are, right? Uh, I've gotten a little more secure in our relationship, right? So in our last men's group this year, once I'd gotten a dictionary and like decoded what he was saying... There were a couple times where I was like, I think I disagree with you. And that was beautiful. He wasn't wrong because his perspective was clearly evidenced from Scripture. You know, so was mine. And that's what it looks like to have a healthy interdenominational church. It's to be able to read the Bible, asking God what it means, not what I want it to mean, and come away with a nuanced perspective from each other. And then we work it out in the real world. What do we do now? Right? You think this value is most important to be relayed in this passage or this scenario. I think this one is. So now what? Right? That's something we do in an interdenominational church that's not going to have, that's not going to happen in a specific denomination where they have, right, that they've got this linear path. An interdenominational church should not be like that. How do we pray for leading from the Holy Spirit to work in this specific scenario? We need that friction. We need that tension, that wrestling, that contrast in worldview amongst 
believers to get a more complete perspective of the will of God in real life scenarios. Take another moment if you want to just think through that passage before we move on to our next passage. Any of the things that are kind of speaking to you from this passage. So our second passage is Galatians 2. You can go there. Galatians 2, 11 through 16. Uh, so this is a different scenario, right? Our first one, we were able to look at both perspectives and see validity. This one, there's going to be a little more ironing, sharpening iron. When Cephas, uh, most uh, scholars believe Cephas is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I like that. Because he stood condemned. I don't know. I, just, I like the visual there. He stood condemned, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, his former culture. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. What's happening? The whole group with common social identity markers saying, we'll just go to our old ways. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because my works of the law, by, by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here again we see in Galatians another type of disagreement. This one isn't going to be solved so quickly. There aren't two different perspectives that can both be pursued through their own conviction. In this case, perspective has to be changed, perspective has to be molded, it has to be shaped. It has to be broadened. And again, let's start by asking the question, is one person completely right? Is one person completely wrong? Well, our first instinct would say Peter's completely wrong here, right? And yet he's acting out of things that he received from God. Peter's perspective was based on one of the most intense cultures in history. The Jewish people can trace their lineage back to King Solomon, the wisest man in history, King David, a man after God's own heart, to Moses who received the laws of God on tablets God himself inscribed. Along with these Ten Commandments, God gave Moses the laws transcribed in Exodus and Leviticus. These are detailed laws. God instructs each member of the Hebrew race that they should memorize every verse, every word. And throughout their early history, what do we see? As the Jews would be under rule of some governing superpower, they would continue to follow the law given to Moses by God. And it would distinguish them. They're used to being distinguished from other cultures. The identity markers of their race, their culture, their nationality were the same identity markers that distinguished them as followers of God. So now they're supposed to give those up? The Jews were persecuted for following this law rather than the law of whatever empire had control of the world at the time. But every time they were persecuted, they were given a sign by God that indeed this law was superior 
the law of these new empires. This would have been confusing for Peter. You're just going to throw that away? So Jesus comes along, and he abolishes this law, right? This life-giving, cultural, distinguishing law, he abolishes it, right? Well, kind of. It's confusing. It's confusing if you're a first-century Jew. It's confusing if you're a first-century Gentile who's been saved by faith. What does Jesus do to the law? This is a, a question throughout history. Okay? We just went over this a few weeks ago, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sin, sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Oh yeah, I get it. Paul is saying Jesus comes and says the law was dumb. Love wins. Just love God, love people. Don't worry about the Old Testament. Throw it away. Peter, you lose. End of story, right? Well, then what do you do with Matthew 5? Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law. Shoot. Or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them all and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, so I get it. So Peter's right. Paul's wrong. Not only do you have to keep the law, you have to keep it better than the Pharisees who were pretty good at keeping the law. Or you don't go to heaven. End of story. Let's see if we can get more confused, yeah? Let's skip ahead uh, to Romans 10. Don't tell Cliff. I'm going to Romans 10 here before he does. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Jews by race, is that they may be saved for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. From being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Here's where Peter would have been upset. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Can you imagine being a first century Jew and wrestling with this? Your whole life has been distinction. That's what God called you to was distinction. And now here's this thought, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So I guess that's the winner, right? There's no distinction. Old Testament was worthless. There's like a thought. I told you I win the argument. Move on, Peter. No. Hopefully we've been in here in the studies of Romans to see the Old Testament is not worthless. But hopefully we should also see in the book of Romans, it's complicated. There isn't a straight answer. It isn't work versus faith. This is a complex debate we will continue to wrestle with from different perspectives, 
Because the entirety of the Bible shows that faith is not by works, but rather faith produces works. And so if one says that they have faith and another says they have works, James says they're both partially correct, and yet they are both dreadfully lost. Again, an incomplete perspective is just as harmful as an incorrect perspective. And I think this makes it even more important that we just plead with God that our local churches be composed of many members of various perspectives from various racial, national, this probably is the biggest for us here at Bridges, socioeconomic, cultural, and generational contexts. We don't have time to thoroughly sort out the reason that the Bible seems so schizophrenic when it comes to faith versus works debate. But the answer is fairly simple, right? It's context. Some people hear that the Scripture teaches you have to follow the law, and those people like that. There are people that like rules. Emily Rickard, that was weird. So they focus on those superficial actions. They judge everyone who falls short of fulfilling the law, and they leave out the Christ-glorifying love that is central to the Bible. So when Paul is writing to churches composed of people Group, people groups focus on the law, what does he do? He tells them the law is dead. Christ abolished it. You, don't, you can't do enough good things to get into heaven. Paul is right to say that. It's true. And this is the key I want you to get here. This is a key thing for understanding the Bible. The ideology of the people group shapes the message that is necessary to preach. On the other side, some people hear about the grace of God, that Christ died for the sins of those who confess his name, and that God won't convict you of your sins because Christ has already been punished for your sins, past, present, and future. And some people, when they hear about grace, they start to quantify it as a never-ending get-out-of-hell-free card. Chad Rickard. That was weird. And given this freedom, right, they decide logically they can do whatever they want as long as they've said the magic words. So to this type of ideology, James says, no, faith without works is dead. Again, the ideology of the people group, whatever you're stuck in, shapes the message you have to receive. Peter and Paul were both coming from a place of correct theological statements. And yet, Peter's was less complete. In this disagreement, Peter's perspective had to be realigned to a truth that was bigger than his deep-rooted cultural perspective based on thousands of years of, if we're fair calling it this, of ethnocentricity. That's what Bible-based, Holy Spirit-filled disagreement does. It shatters racially-centered elitism. It shatters myopic cultural perspective. Truly reading the Bible as it's meant to be read, truly looking to the Spirit for His truth, shows us God uses healthy disagreement to say, look, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. My vision is clearer. My vision is bigger. So I want to leave us with this thought of what would it look like to truly be an interdenominational church? I pray that this is the goal of Bridges, right? I mean, it's, it's our identity marker, so don't we want it? That we would hunger for the presence of contrasting perspectives. Contrasting perspectives due to different 
geographical upbringings. Contrasting perspectives because we, we have members who are students from UCR who've come here from all over the world, and they bring with them insights as well as flaws from their own unique perspective. Contrasting experiences because we have people who rent apartments in our surrounding neighborhoods. We have others who have 3,000 square foot homes in Woodcrest. We have people who put their kids in Christian school and public school and home school. People who just slept through school because they hated it. People who get paid to say that your favorite part of your day should be school. I don't really even believe it. I just get paid to say it. I pray that we would be a church ready to listen to the perspectives of those who say, look, I guarantee you I'm not lying to you when I say I've been pulled over by a cop simply because of the color of my skin, simply because of my clothes, simply because of the type of car, and that I've been made a subject of racial profiling. But I pray that we would also be a church ready to listen to the perspectives of those sworn to protect the community, and they want to do so, but they've got wives and children begging them, please shoot first, ask questions later, because we want you home tonight. These are contrasting experiences, and both of them are scary. We have to listen to both. Disagreement creates an opportunity to grow our perspective, to grow our perspective of the human experience, our perspective of the Christian life, the way in which God reveals his character to us. I wanted to think through one last thing before we, we close. Uh, I was trying to think of an analogy to, to make us understand how dangerous schema development is to a Christian. So I, I think the best way to describe schema, right, you've created this fortress, right? It's this fortress that you've made as a safety mechanism. Your brain has to believe these things are true. And so what do we do? Anytime there's any new information, We've got this machine gun, and we gun it down if it looks like a foreign object that won't fit in with our fortress. We can't grow in perspective like that. We can't grow as Christians if we walk into this setting and you hear a sermon, and your goal is anytime you hear a sermon, you've already got your preconceived, you've got your list here, this is what I believe, and you've just got this the, you know, the side-by-side, side, all right, did the pastor check this out? Oh, he disagrees, throw that out. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Oh, pastor's right here, pastor's right here. What did he say? That doesn't go along. Throw that out. We do this in church, right? We walk into a service, maybe it's a, a, a service you haven't been to before, you're visiting somewhere else, right? And you go through your checklist. Huh. I, I liked what he said here, I liked what he said here. Then he said this, I don't believe that, so. And that's where, that's where it starts, right? My belief, my current belief system is the truth. Pastor, if you want to teach me, you better believe what I believe. What? That is so dangerous. Is that how we approach our Wednesday night Bible studies, our small groups? I've already got my preconceived notions. This is what I came in, and I am prepared. In this passage, this one's pretty controversial, so I'm prepared to defend my side. Really? That's our goal? So after 30 years in the church, 40 years in the church, 50 years in the church, 
how much have you grown or have you just got really good at defending your side? What's the purpose? God is leading bridges in new ways. That, that is not me saying that. That is God saying that all the time because it's always true. God is always doing the next thing. It will always be consistent with the Bible. It will always be consistent with being Christ-centered, but it's always going to be new to culture. So if you're looking at the Bible and you're looking at your, your cultural, social identity markers and saying, God better align to this or else I'm not up for it, then I'm scared for us. We need to be a place that is ready to look at what is God doing. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would uh, make these words genuine, that I personally would believe them, um, that I would get over my own preconceived ideas and be willing to be taught at all times. I pray that you would give us as leadership fresh eyes. Yes, we're, we're not saying get rid of the Bible. We're not saying get rid of the, the gospel. We want to be centered in that. But God, give us eyes that are, are willing to, to look at what does that look like here? What does that look like in 2018 in Riverside? What will that look like in 2019? Does that look differently in the new church building than it did in the last church building because we're reaching new people? Give us eyes that are willing to see what you want, not what we want. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, let's, uh, let's do some singing, huh? This back and forth is fun. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Love in His wonderful faith, and the things over will go straight. Strange leading 
we didn't talk about which one of us would close this, so we'll, we'll practice interdenominational church. Liam, would you close us? Absolutely. <laughs> well, as you turn your eyes upon Jesus this week, I pray that you see his face in unexpected places amongst your family, your community, your workplace. May you be met. And even if you do have to change, it is well with your soul. So if you'd like us to be praying for you this week, there are cards where you can put a prayer request for your regular attenders. You can put your uh, tithes and offering in there. I just ask the Lord bless you as you go from here. Thank you uh, for being here and hearing this word. Bless you. One last, sorry, wow. Okay. Uh, one last thing for those who have family members coming back from Malawi right now. Uh, about 20 minutes ago, they were heading over to get them. Their luggage was out, and uh, the truck was getting to get them. So it's coming out of LAX probably an hour and a half or so. So just be in touch. Uh, so Mike and Brian are bringing them back. But they are back. They have their luggage, and they're in the attempting stage of getting picked up right now. So just to kind of update everyone that has family.